What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton co-editor-in-chief of Variety. Today, my guest is Paul Lee, CEO of production company WIP. Lee is among the more successful of the high-level network and studio alums who have moved into production ventures after their corporate tenures ended in recent years. Lee rose over 12 years at Disney to become president of ABC Family and then head of ABC Entertainment and its studio. Lee has kept a low profile since he launched WIP in 2016. The company has evolved into a collection of producers and writers doing high-pedigree boutique projects. The roster reflects the class and mass style that he established at ABC with hits such as Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder, Blackish, and Fresh Off the Boat. In its short life, WIP has scored with HBO's Mayor of Easttown, Amazon Prime Video's The Summer I Turn Pretty, Apple TV Plus's Dickinson, FX's Pistol, HBO's White House Plumbers, with more to come. The company really reflects the shifting sands for TV in its roots and its present ownership. It was incubated at CAA, and now it's majority owned by the South Korean conglomerate JTBC Studios. Lee knows how to think about scaling shows and concepts from his time climbing the ranks at Disney. He also knows startups. The native Brit came to the U.S. through the launch of the BBC America cable channel in the late 1990s. And in his earliest days, 
Lee did production of all kinds for the BBC in news, factual, and documentaries. So now he's bringing that all together in a company that comes by its global perspective honestly. Lee is proud to tell me on the day of this interview that the company's BBC2 hit Toast of Tinseltown from writer Matt Berry has just won Switzerland's Rose d'Or Prize for comedy. In our conversation, Lee describes how he's drawing on his varied experience to build WIP into a going concern that has real library value for its owners. And after riding the streaming wave for the past few years, he has good insights into the pressure points in the system that have exploded into the writer's strike. That's all coming up after the break. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. And we're back with a deep dive into selling TV shows with Paul Lee, CEO of WIP. Paul Lee. CEO of WIP. Thank you so much for inviting me over to your beautiful offices here off Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Well, thank you for coming along. We're excited to have you here. After your tenure at ABC was over, what was it about the opportunity to build what has become WIP? What was it that appealed to you? Because I know you had more, you had many routes that you could have gone. Why did you go with WIP? Well, it's, it's hard to underestimate how exhilarating it was to be out of corporate life, I have to say. I mean, I had done a startup. BBC America was, of course, a startup within, backed by Discovery and by the BBC. And I'd loved doing it in my 20s. I was a producer director, which is obviously by definition extremely entrepreneurial. But um, we had had a great run at Disney, um, super proud of the things that we did at ABC Family and at ABC, had a great team around. But it was time, and I, I relished the freedom and the anonymity. Um, and this new revolution was starting. This revolution, she pointed out, had been around long enough to see a number of them. Um, 
was clearly more disruptive, uh, more different, in many ways more creative, and definitely more global than yeah. the broadcast revolutions or beyond them, the cable and then the digital cable revolution that we, uh, that we brought BBC America in on. So it felt like this was a great position to be outside of the big corporate structures in this nice big airy office, um, but still playing in a world where all the rules were going to change. Was there something about the CAA at that moment? Were they in a were they in an entrepreneurial mode? Were they trying to seed that? Was there something that that specific that brought you to CAA, or was that just the the offer that spoke to you? Well, what, what I loved about their approach, and I was already obviously close to to Richard and Brian and Kevin, was that they wanted to make something that was extraordinary. They wanted to make shows that they and all their talent could be proud of. And they wanted to create something which I think very relevant to the world we're in now, that was above all else a champion for talent, for writers, for directors, for actors, a place where we could find their passions, we could invest in them, we could give them the freedom to do what they wanted, we could sell anywhere we wanted to sell, anywhere they wanted to sell, and then protect them as we, as we went into production. And for me, that's what had driven our successes at, at ABC Family and ABC. And the notion, and of course I, in my 20s, was a, was a writer and a, a director and a producer. So that notion of, of creating brand-defining shows for the new platforms, um, that's something I shared very much with, with Brian and Richard and Kevin. And we had a lot of fun, lot of fun doing it together. Mm -hmm. Did you, going into it, coming from Disney, which has mastered the idea of the flywheel and the franchise building, did you, I mean, you must have gone in eyes open that you were going into a world of selling shows where the buyers want everything to be siloed and they want every stitch of rights as you walk in the door. How did you navigate that? Well, listen, I, I as you pointed out, have been on platforms for long enough to know certain obvious rhythms. One of them is that certainly during downtimes and different platforms do this at different times, the strat planners will always come in and they'll always say three things. They've certainly said it to me a few times over the decades. First of all, why don't you just make the hits? Uh, secondly, uh, we need to cut budgets. And thirdly, we need to buy entirely from our, from our own teams, right? And but when you do that, what happens over time, and I've watched this again and again and again, is that platforms can be successful in the short term, but in the long term they stagnate. And that the best solution for any platform, be it the old broadcast platforms or the new streaming platforms, is to have a mixed economy. And by that I mean mm -hmm. we would never have got to Blackish if we hadn't had Modern Family that had come out of 20th. Brought in an audience. Right in your creativity, what happens if you just buy from your own walled garden is that you, you, the ideas start to stagnate and you're, you're always limited to the briefs and to the people and to the tastes of a limited group of people. And it's, I, I watched this happen again and again and again when the BBC brought in 25% of independence. Uh, this was back in the 80s. There was a huge wave of creativity that came off the back of that that helped BBC's proprietary studio, right? You could argue the FinCEN rules did the same thing. You could argue that, you know, the, the independent movies of the 60s mm -hmm. did the same. They cross-pollinate and they bring mm -hmm. things in. So what we knew was 
particularly since, since there are many, many buyers, that at any given moment, a number of those buyers would be looking to see great ideas coming in from the outside. And that if what we did is create terrific scripts, terrific projects, terrific ideas, and brought in the best talent, then we could always enrich. We would never be the number one favorite studio of a given streamer, but we could, we could pitch to be the number two or three favorite studios. And that's a great position to be. Mm -hmm. I'd love to get some sense on the strategy of that, like how you package and how you go out to pitch. Well, we, we always drive it from our own passion. Um, you know, I, I believe that if you sit down and try to figure out exactly what all the buyers want, um, you're going to be late to the party because what you're always doing is figuring out what they wanted when you started putting that yeah, together, right, right. right? And, you know, I don't do their jobs. It's an extremely hard job. I did do it and I, I don't pretend to tell them how to do it because they have all sorts of pressures and all sorts of information that others outside don't have. But I think that when a script catches you in your gut, as opposed to what are the, uh, what are the briefs that have been decided corporately that might be wanted? If you're a buyer, if something really touches you in your gut, it resonates and it feels relevant and emotionally resonant, you should buy that show. Because the world will change so dramatically from now to when you pick it up and from when you pick it up to when it goes out, when it goes out seasons two and three. And often the things that resonate most are not the things we're thinking about at the moment. Not everybody was talking about AI two years ago. Right. Right. So the, I think the key is an emotional connection with a, with a subject, not necessarily the idea or the genre or even the package. That's the first one. The second key is to make sure that the writer and director are extraordinary and are bringing their A game and are bringing their passion to that project. So you've got to look them in the eye and say, is this the one you really want to do? And if it is, you have a chance of a hit. Do you find that people, when you, especially in, in this role, being a, a newer company on the scene and, and people knowing that you're not, you know, you're not going into a big studio with a lot of, do you find that people are very focused on single ideas or do you do people come in and you talk through a bunch of ideas and come to it together and to come to like hey let's really focus on this one thing i'm just curious how in terms of the writers who come to us or the, the directors writers, that very that very earliest gestation of somebody comes in to pitch you do they do you find that people really pitch you specific things or do they come in and say i'm interested in these worlds i, th I think it's a combination the the reality though is that when I was at a big corporate structure, the job was to create a network and a brand that flowed from your particular brief and taste buds and, and passions and, and what your audience wanted. We are selling to nine, as you say, maybe 20 different buyers, certainly around the world, many more. And so we've structured the company accordingly. We have a number of creatives, four or five creatives that we believe are extremely good at their job and we trust them to run their own businesses, to be in business with the people that they want to be, to invest in the shows that they believe in. We give them information, we give them support, we give them business affairs support, production support. But uh, what that allows us to do is very much the structure of New Line uh, back in the 90s and 2000s. It allows us to have all sorts of different taste buds and they have different ways of approaching a different talent that they are in business with and that they are close to. 
Um, but the direct answer to your question is both. Mm -hmm. People will come in with a slew of ideas and will want direction as to where to go. And others will be like, this is what I want to do. I'm going to make this. This is what I've been... And, yeah. and do you, is, it, is it like something that you sense? Is it a gut thing? Or does it really, that you know, like, oh, this person has passion for this? Or does it, like, you really have to see it on the page? Oh, I think you, you can tell someone's passion when they walk in the door. And it is not true of everybody who runs, a, who is a buyer. But we were figuring out the other day, I never had a hit that I wasn't passionate about. Mm -hmm. There are some buyers who were rather geniusly, would only have hits that they hated. <laughs> and they will remain unnamed, but you can probably guess who they were. But from my personal experience, if you love a project, and if somebody walks in the room with a real twinkle in their eyes, you got a chance there something special. Don't pick up another script. Hang tight and we'll be right back with more from Paul Lee, CEO of WIP. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. We're back with more insights on selling TV shows from Paul Lee, CEO of WIP. In this environment, how do you turn the passion, the quality, the amazing partners, how do you turn that into a business? Well, what defines and what will always define these streamers is individual great shows, right? This is how this industry has worked for 70, maybe 100 years. And there's going to be an unholy fight between the streamers as to who will succeed and who will fight. We're in the middle of that fight and it will take as long as it takes, maybe three to five years. The best ammunition, the best tool any platform can have in that flight, in that fight, is individual and brilliant shows. If you have, you know, Mayor of Easttown uh, in your arsenal, or if you have Succession in your arsenal, if you have Samurai Town Pretty in your arsenal, or, or Diplomat in your arsenal, that is going to drive subscribers, it's going to drive audiences, it's going to drive growth, and it's going to drive profits. So the best business model for us is to have the shows that people watch. And the audiences can smell the shows that are cynical, mm -hmm. they can smell the shows that are trying to give them lessons, and then they can smell the storytelling that resonates and that, that is original and brilliant. And those are the ones that define these platforms and always have. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you to drill down a little bit on the business sense, not the dollars and cents, but just on the on the business sense? Are you able to structure deals with a Netflix or an Apple TV Plus or an Amazon, places where you've done business? Are you able to structure deals where you ultimately own the copyrights? You can contain the the license term. I mean, there's definitely 
you know, there's definitely, especially at this moment in the creative community, there's a lot of discussion and sort of dissection of of how the business is changing. And I, I think it's we're in this moment and there is obviously a writer strike. There's probably pickets not too far down the road here uh, from where we sit at Netflix. But um, there's a sense of like, I think, I think what happened is streaming was new and everybody was excited. And of course it, incre- it injected a ton of money and energy and no rules. But I think what happened is sometime after the pandemic started to ease, people looked around and go, wait, this is the norm. And the old rules are the exception. Can you make the economics work and make making content a profitable business for, for WIP? The answer is yes. Uh, if we have a show that is competitive, then obviously we're going to end up with a better deal. Right. We have plenty of shows that we've done that we do have copyright on. And, and, and the answer is also that I believe it will also get stronger because... Uh, you're already starting to see outside of the strike, you're starting to see um, a much more complex environment. An environment where the, buyer, where the buyers will buy just for one market or two markets. Uh, there'll be more and more complex windows beyond that. Um, there already are a number of broadcasters around the world and a number of our shows are now becoming available to sell to those broadcasters. I think we're going to be in a world that is is not nearly as uniform mm-hmm. and will allow us and others to be able to take the copyrights that we have and make sure that we, we build value over that for ourselves and for the talent that's there. The other thing that I would say that is related to the strike is that I think this is the moment in answer to your question about, okay, let's sit down and look at the future, mm-hmm. to take stock about what the streaming world looks and feels mm-hmm. like, to, to do so in a way that we can be in, in, in relations to our streaming partners and our talent uh, that can sustain and pay. But I think the most important thing is that streamers and talent and studios sit down and figure out a mechanism whereby we can share in the success that we all build together. That's how Hollywood has been so strong mm-hmm. for the last 70 years. And if we could do that in a way that, that all parties will benefit then it will bring a huge amount of storytelling strength for the next few decades to come. One thing, though, has changed and will not not go back, and I think it's a great thing, but I speak as a Brit, which is storytelling has now become global. Yes, that is definitely... I remember the time when we were trying to do a follow-up to Downton Abbey on ABC. It wasn't a very real thought, but there wasn't a person in the world thought that could work. Right? Downton Abbey, one of the most watchable right. ABC-like, ABC-branded shows you could imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you can have a specific, brilliant, low-budget hit out of Israel or Colombia, right. or a big-budget hit out of London right, or Seoul that are being watched by the whole world. So uh, I think that isn't going to change. In fact, I would suggest that's probably going to move I suggest that's probably going to grow stronger as we go forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that has been the... I didn't appreciate in 2016 when Netflix flipped the switch at CES, when they flipped the switch on all those countries, it took me a while to appreciate the significance of, of just blowing through those borders, that the business had really been, it seems quaint now, all these low, these many, few years later, but, but it does, like, the business was so geographically specific as the streaming 
and the on-demand business has grown and the appetite for sh much shorter episode orders has that is that evoked to you the more the British system and is that was that something that you kind of recognized as oh this is a model I can work with I, I think absolutely I mean the British system was always limited series seasons sometimes one two but probably not more than that um, usually the director was the lead on a given shoot. That's been a, such a huge sea change as well. Um, but great writers in England, you know, during my professional life and in America uh, now, and, and, and this will always be the case, are what drive the original voice. And unless you have Troy Kennedy Martin, you're not going to have Edge of Darkness, however great my friend the director is. So, and even though the structure is different, and even though the streamers are not looking for long-running series, although I will say, The Crown has run a long time, and you may find that that particular model changes as series begin to drive the streamers' businesses around the world. Um, it is still the case that the talent that creates the show um, is driving tremendous profits, and we have to figure out a mechanism that we could share that. Mm -hmm. I imagine I can't. You know, Mayor was Mayor of Easttown, which was such a big hit. Went all the way, won Emmys. Kate Winslet, Gene Smart. I mean, it just you could not have packed more. And it was it was also so. It, it had the engine of a mystery, but it was truly emotional and moving and touching. It wasn't like oh, here's the killer in the closet. It was a woman coming to grips with. You know, it was just really. I I I won't blow it for listeners, but that last. The, the closing moments of that scene, of that show, the closing moments of that series are, have really stayed with me. And um, of course, I'm gonna ask you if there's a chance we'll see more Mayor, but what was it like for you as a producer to get to that height, like to, you know, peak Emmys, HBO, everybody's talking about it. That must have been, that must have been pretty cool. It was, it was terrific. And don't forget, it was kind of during lockdown. The person who gets the credit for it is Mark Roybal on our team because he's the one who, who put it together and, and, and built it. But it was, it was terrific and extremely exciting and it was such a credit to Brad Inglesby mm -hmm. who wrote this script mm -hmm. and to Kate Winslet who performed it that she was able to, in your words, to transcend the genre and to create something that really had emotional resonance with all of us and was done on so many levels. So we were immensely proud of it and, and, uh, and super happy to have it as a calling card for our future. That was just, I, was, I mean, obviously yourself and, you know, your partners were significant, but there's probably nothing like, hey, we're the company that made Mayor of Easttown to just spur activity and get people interested. Absolutely. I mean, Dickinson had put us on the map mm -hmm. uh, in terms of critical acclaim, but it was Mayor of Easttown in terms of global success, and we suddenly had talent, writers, directors, actors around the world going, all right, I could do business with these guys, they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. we, were, we were very proud of it. I mean, you know, you have failures for every hit that you do. I can't remember any of the failures from my time <laughs> at ABC or ABC Family. Um, but when things come together, and it, it's not just that the writers and directors and the script, and, but the time is right. The world wanted right. to watch that show when right. it came out. And uh, because we'd all been through 18 months of lockdown and we put our feet up and we, we put ourselves into the hands of, of Brad and Kate.
about the writer strike. Don't want to belabor it. I know that it's a larger it's a larger topic. But how for you, you know, still in your in Whip's young life, has this been has this kind of you know shuddering of activity? Is this is this a struggle for you in terms of financially with shows shutting down? How are you how are you navigating this strike? Well, we're we're very lucky to have great owners. JTBC and mm-hmm. in South Korea are our owners along with Atwater and, and CAA to a lesser extent. And so, you know, we feel very blessed to have the support that we have going through that. It, it is obviously frustrating and disruptive for everybody. Um, I mean, that's, that's the purpose of a strike. <laughs> um, but I do hope, and, and I'll, I'll repeat this, I, I do hope that we can figure out a way where both, both streamers and, and, and talent sit down together and figure out a mechanism whereby they can really share in the success that they create together. Um, and, and I think, uh, I, I feel optimistic over time that it's, it's a strategically right moment to, as you say, figure out how we're all going to work together in a streaming world. Is it in the WIP business model to, would you do a, if, if NBC or CBS or ABC wanted you to do a, you know, a comedy that could potentially be a 22 episode a year, would that work for you? We would absolutely do that. We would absolutely do that. We're at the moment pitching, I'm not sure I'm allowed to say what it is, a, a, a reality format show. And so we've been to ABC and NBC and, uh, and we're about to go to Fox. We're, we're very excited about that show. So no, absolutely we'd be in business with the broadcasters. They have different needs mm-hmm. and, and different financial parameters. Um, I think many of the scripted limited series or short run series that we do are, are probably better, better suited to the streamers. Um, but yeah, we're, we, we hope to get a pickup on this reality show that we're out with at the moment. <laughs> we'll stay tuned on that. Is there, um, obviously, you know, we just come through Q1 earnings season and every, exe- every CEO has been preaching the gospel of cost cutting and cost containment. Are you feeling any tightening in the marketplace? There's no question that I think we all felt, felt tightening probably around last summer. Yeah. And it was sort of the moment where the streaming revolution went from a, a land grab to a, this land needs to be fertile, <laughs> right? We, we, we need to grow crops on this land. Well put. Um, and so we certainly saw that, and we sold a lot of stuff into development, but we saw a redirecting within many of the major companies. Um, what we're seeing now, actually, uh, were it not for the strike, is many of those companies now having slightly pivoted figured out where they're going. We've seen a lot of activity and momentum and a lot of interest in the buyers. So we're optimistic that when the strike ends, that there'll be a fair amount of optimism, not just to fill the shelves, which have different shapes and different Mm -hmm. dynamics Mm -hmm. from the shelves of of the broadcasters of old, but they will not only need to fill the shelves, but they will be ready to buy and create global storytelling. And, And that's what we do for a living. Of course, I know, you know, a truly producing for global audience is a focus. You've had a show that's gotten a lot of attention in the UK and other markets, The Toast of Tinseltown. Yeah, we are super proud of that show. This is done by David Flynn, who looks after our international stuff. We did it in conjunction with the BBC. It has Matt Berry. I'm proud to say we just won the rose door for it. Congratulations. Um, thank you so much. And I think it's a, it's a measure of how independent studios like ours can take advantage of the fluid environment around the world to put together partners 
and create shows with local broadcast par partners that we can then go on to sell to streamers and beyond. And it, it's a sign of how much the storytelling in the future is going to be global and our ability to monetize that storytelling is going to get more and more complex and hopefully more and more interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow, and I'm sure that I'm sure it's available on streamers here. Is it a, not is yet? It? But it will be. Let me close by asking you this: You've mentioned a couple of times, obviously, that you came up the ranks in the BBC as a producer and a as a writer and a producer. What What do you think in your early your early career, whether it be in your producing days or maybe other things? What What are some of the experiences that you had early on? that have really prepared you for this moment that you're in, for leading your own, your own content company? Well, the, one of the exciting things about what we're doing at the moment is we're in uncharted territory. It is so emotionally and intellectually exciting. It's a very strange thing to say during a strike, mm -hmm. but it is so exciting to be here. This is like being you know, in motion pictures in the 20s or in broadcasters you know, in the mm -hmm. 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. It is an extremely challenging and exciting moment to be there and to be able to create storytelling that can be watched around the world and to be at a moment where the best storytelling is the one that rises to the top and that the audiences who always can smell cynicism mm -hmm. and genius mm -hmm. in different measure will gravitate, gravitate towards the genius. So we're in uncharted territory and the uncharted nature of it is why we're having such fun. You know, we're able in a small company to sit down here, recruit the people that we love working with, work with the writers that we think are super talented and the directors, and not have to worry about the needs of a wider corporation. So all, all that is, is glorious. What I will say very specifically is, in my 20s, I was a producer, director, writer for BBC Two, and uh, made a number of arts documentaries, a couple of scripted, uh, a scripted feature and a scripted hour. And so as we go through building this company, and I, I have done this throughout my career as an executive, and I do it now um, on, this, on this company, I always sit in the seat of the director and the writer mm. as we go mm -hmm. into something. That's where I started. You can't turn that off. Yeah. You can't turn that off. You know what's driving them. You know when they feel insecure because you felt insecure, and you know when they know what they're doing is going to be great. And our job is just to back that. That, is, that was our job at ABC, and that's our job here. That's great. Well, I think you just explained a big part of why WIP has been so successful. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening. Be sure to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts and Amazon Music. We love to hear from listeners. Please go to Variety.com and sign up for our free weekly Strictly Business newsletter. And don't forget to tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. Hi, come here. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! 
Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B.